I am introducing tonight's lecture by Ingrid Schaffner. She is our 2019 Aspen Art Museum Curator in Residence, and our gratitude always goes out to the Questrom Education Fund for making this lecture free, as well as thanks to the Laffey McHugh Foundation. So Ingrid's lecture is being presented um, as part of a new special public program series that we're calling the Legacy Lectures, and this is the first of a few that we'll do between now and when we celebrate the fifth anniversary of our building uh, this summer. So this year, you've probably heard me say 2019 is 5 plus 15 equals 40, and then I pause to say we're not bad at math, but it's five years in this building, 15 years of Art Crush, and 40 years since the founding of the Aspen Art Museum. So the idea is that these lectures will examine um, the legacy of luminaries who have shaped art and culture um, and that sector and how it has affected our lives. So not necessarily um, connected to our own personal history. Though Ingrid was here before and was the curator of the amazing Karen Kalimnik show that we did in the old building um, about 10 years ago. So we filmed in Art Matters today and we were reminiscing about her previous visit here. So a brief introduction to Ingrid. Um, Native of Pittsburgh, I didn't know that, okay. Um, studied art history at Mount Holyoke and was part of the Whitney's ISP program, received her master's in art history from NYU's Institute of Fine Art. Um, and her curatorial practice has a very broad reach, including work as the chief curator of the ICA Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania for 15 years. Um, and independent projects that have totaled authorship of over 20 books and 200 articles. Most recently, she curated the 57th Carnegie International, which opened in 2018. It is the oldest exhibition of international contemporary art in North America and the second oldest in the world, following the Venice Biennale by just a year, I think. So um, I'm sure you will enjoy her presentation, and um, then she'll take some questions. and. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Ingrid. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you. Can you hear me if I just talk? Yeah. Oh. Okay. <laughs> this mic's for you. <laughs> so, um, the title of my talk is uh, Carnegie International in the Bardo. In um, Tibetan Buddhism, the Bardo is the place between um, life and death. It's the place, space between um, uh, being on earth and then being on earth again. And it's a kind of perfect um, metaphor for where I am right now with the Carnegie International, which closed last Monday. So, um, so we're kind of in the bardo right now with the Carnegie International. We're deinstalling. And um, so I thought, uh, with tonight's talk, we just kind of like ghosts walk through this exhibition, which is about to vanish. So, where on earth are we? We're in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Pittsburgh is the city famously of three rivers. It's in Appalachia. It has a very particular topography. Um, it was known as the Paris of Appalachia back in the day. And this is the uh, facade of the Carnegie Museum of Art with the work by L. Anatsui, who is an artist from Ghana who's based in Nigeria. And I invited L. to create a work. Yeah, please sit up towards front because uh, pull up a chair. <laughs> 
um, to create a, a work for the facade of the building to announce that the Carnegie International is in the house. And so, um, L, um, the sculpture is all made of recycled metal, and it's like this mantle that covers the facade of our beautiful, brutalist um, architecture, a building built in 1974 by Edward Larrabee Edward Larrabee Barnes, who had just finished The Walker. And you see here on the plaza is this great Richard Serra sculpture thrusting up to the sky. So, oh, here, here it is naked. Um, and when L came to visit, um, to think about what he would do for the international, he was very um, struck by how the court and steel of um, the Serra kind of blends into the stone of the building. So um, with the work that he created, here's a detail, it has three elements. This is kind of L's signature uh, materiality. These are hundreds of thousands of bottle caps that are all um, held together with little pieces of wire to create this almost like fabric cloth or metal cloth. And then these are printing plates from the Pittsburgh local commercial printer. And um, so this is kind of the fabric for this piece. And um, in inviting Elle to participate, for me, it was about um, this sort of mantle that Elle would bring to the international that would connect our exhibition to other major international exhibitions. So this is Elle at the Venice Biennale. This is Elle's work that he made for the Marrakesh Biennial. These are, this is over years, over decade. Um, here's the Royal Academy in London. And um, this opened subsequent to the international. This is the Hausterkunst in Munich, where Elle created a work using printing plates from um, a local press in Munich. And um, the Hausterkunst right now is hosting the first major survey of Elle's work, and it's called Triumphant Scale. I think you can see why. So I had this idea of Elle's work connecting us to a global art world with this piece that he created for us. And um, he talks about, so here behind the Sarah, he used a reflective material to really bring light, um, to sort of dissolve the building and bring um, light um, uh, behind the Sarah so it kind of feels released from the building. And then he's balancing it with his own, um, this materiality of his, uh, the, the bottle cap element. And then here, this, um, the um, printing plates in between. And see how they're creased and folded? For L, that was a response to the topography of Pittsburgh itself, that, that kind of the sense of confluence. And um, the piece is called Three Angles. So he made this magnificent sculpture for the facade of the Carnegie International, and it will soon be snipped and <laughs> coming down off the front of the building will be naked again. So you came into the building, and you were greeted by this billboard pair of images by a photographer from Kenya. Um, Mimi Chirona Nyok, and um, Mimi had always wanted to work at billboard scale, this incredible pair of images. She is a very peripatetic photographer. She's always traveling through residencies or exhibition opportunities, and um, uh, there's a sense of um, scale, like photography um, traveling with her. So here at this sort of monumental scale, and then this um, was a, um, the folded up exhibition plan. So everybody got to take home a photograph by Mimi, was on the back of the plan. You can see the folds and creases. Um, so there was pocket size and a billboard size. And this was the plan. 
that showed the footprint of the international in the museum. And um, it folded up to something about Yo Big. And um, uh, yes, there was a plan, but there was no particular way you had to move through the international. Usually when I took people on a tour, I'm taking you on a tour, we'd start with the one and only wall text for the whole exhibition. There it is. It was like this sort of billboard. And it simply said, welcome to the Carnegie International. It said there is not a theme. There's not, so I didn't spend three years going around the world trying to find some theme that was going to unite the world of uh, art today. But there are conditions and the idea that contemporary artists live in the same world we do. It's a world of uh, shifting terrain, of um, you know, uh, the effects of climate change, the effects of late capitalism. Um, we're in a moment right now where there are more people on the move than ever before on Earth. So um, this sort of um, tension around the word international itself is being one of the conditions that artists brought to the exhibition. And then there is the international itself, the Carnegie International, which I was um, very mindful of in organizing the show. So um, uh, this lobby space I transformed into, in my mind, as a sort of street of art. And on the street, um, this is work by Thaddeus Mosley, who is an artist based in Pittsburgh when I, um, he was one of my first studio visits. And um, Thaddeus talked very eloquently when um, we visited in his studio about how for him as an artist based in Pittsburgh, an artist who's not, um, who's, who's known regionally, who's uh, treasured re regionally, the museum has collected the work, shown the work over the years, but Thaddeus Mosley does not have a national or international reputation. And he talked about how important it was for him that a place like the Carnegie was bringing art from around the world to Pittsburgh for him to experience. And he said, specifically, the 1958 Carnegie International, here's the catalog, um, introduced him to the work of Isamu Noguchi, and, um, which inspired him to uh, pick up a chisel and start carving uh, uh, abstract sculpture. Thaddeus is 93, he's in his studio every day. This is almost like a little survey of uh, work. Um, this one he finished just in time for the show. And you can see the work was both inside and outside. And so another kind of move by locating Thaddeus here is one of the first, um, it was a sort of assertion of Pittsburgh as an international city for creativity, but also that it, um, it, it as viewers, it had a turn and look at this beautiful sculpture courtyard that um, kind of celebrating the museum itself was also one of my, on my agenda. And here's Thaddeus's work over the seasons. The exhibition opened in October and a little dusting of Pittsburgh winter. So then on the street uh, facing Thaddeus was a comic strip, a 70 foot long work by Kerry James Marshall. Um, Kerry James Marshall participated in the 1999 Carnegie International. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with Kerry James Marshall's work. He, um, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, no less, just uh, uh, mounted a survey of Kerry's work, his paintings, and it was called simply Mastery. So Kerry James Mar Marshall's a great American artist and paint, known for his figurative paintings. 1999 Carnegie International, however, he, um, um, began what has uh, um, evolved for him to be a very important body of work, the Rhythm Master comics. So the first issue of Rhythm Master was um, um, disseminated by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Pittsburghers, uh, one Sunday, um, got volume one of the Rhythm Master, and then 
Um, so there were four issues that were distributed over the course of the International. So I asked Kerry to return to Rhythm Master One, so his participation in 1999, to kind of go back to that moment with this International and um, revisit that work. And he said, you know, and that's really interesting, Ingrid, because I've been wanting to redraw number one and bring it into the language, the graphic language that I've evolved for the Rhythm Master series, which is now a series of four different narratives that um, are, are very intentionally bringing black narrative into the American comic book genre. So um, here's a detail of the strip. And um, Carrie said then this redrawing is also, you know, it's not looking like the Sunday funnies anymore. And this um, scale of the frames is very specifically about Panavision. So for Carrie, this is a step towards turning Rhythm Master into a feature film. So we're just, yeah. So, so uh, one moment in this strip, we're in the art world and we're at an opening. And this woman says to this man, I saw the painting he made from this drawing in a show at the Carnegie last year. So this painting is the painting that the museum, the Carnegie Museum acquired in 2016 by Kerry James Marshall. So he's kind of drawing um, his um, ongoing um, history with the Carnegie Museum into the strip. And here is Kerry James Marshall um, conducting a drawing session with, um, with us Pittsburghers as part of um, the um, Carnegie International. I initiated a series of public programs in the form of drawing sessions. And these sessions began long before the exhibition opened. Um, and they ran right on through the exhibition itself. There were 35 in all. So here's Kerry James talking about his drawing practice. And here we all with our, with our drawing boards. And here we are with the drawings that we made, getting a critique from Kerry James Marshall. It was pretty magnificent, kind of like having Leonardo da Vinci come draw with you. Um, here's the first drawing session, which I conducted in the museum's magnificent hall of sculpture. And it was a big public sort of scrum of the exquisite corpse drawing game, which we did with collage and pencil and all different ways. And these um, drawing sessions, um, we documented them online. There's all 35 of them. Um, they had this kooky name, the Tamashanter Drawing Sessions. And um, they took their name from, uh, in 1929, the Carnegie Museum started having free art classes for children. And the Tam O'Shanter is a sort of Scottish beret. So here's kids wearing the little paper hats. And generations of children learned to draw at the Carnegie Museum, including a young Andy Warhol was a Tam O'Shanter. So we rebooted this uh, retro name and uh, adapted it for the International to do improvisations on drawing. So the uh, sessions were big and small. Here's a more intimate session in the uh, museum's library with Magali Ariola, who was uh, uh, the curator in residence last year, yes? And um, Magali contributed to my exhibition as a research companion. So here she is with a Pittsburgh mix of, um, uh, she had us, go into the Museum of Natural History and draw clues from, I guess, the crime of taxidermy. So um, here's a young man drawing some clues. And um, 
the Carnegie Museum of Art is under one roof with the Carnegie Museum of Natural History. So we have our Richard Serra, and they have their dinosaur, kind of its bo museum bookended by the Anthropocene. And here's, <laughs> this, the museum is actually referred to as the immense building. So here's the art museum, natural history, the Carnegie Library, and there's also a Carnegie um, Theater here, music hall. So um, this international, past internationals have moved out into the city. Um, this one I really wanted to just be in and of the museum and sort of draw the energy of the contemporary into this great battery of a museum, museum of museums. So here we are back on the street, and um, we're going to go into this space here. Um, where we see John Rubin and Lanka Clayton, uh, Pittsburgh-based artists who do have national to international careers. They um, collaboratively uh, did a project that inaugurated the Guggenheim Museum so Social Practice Series in 2016. So I asked John and Lenka to activate this first um, sort of gallery space within the international. And they... Um, conducted a lot of research. They, we talked about different approaches, and in the end, um, they created this kind of um, painting studio factory, so that whenever the museum was open, you'd find two painters at work, not necessarily John and Lenka, who, um, uh, and what are they doing? They are, um, so John and Lenka, for themselves, discovered this archive of um, the, the Carnegie International's early history, it was a painting annual. Artists submitted paintings to be uh, considered, and if you were, uh, you would either get accepted, A, or rejected, R. And the museum kept, kept record of all of the A's and the R's by title. So John and Lenka were very um, drawn to all of the R's. John said as an artist who's been rejected many times himself, he wanted to um, uh, champion those rejects. So um, they're taking the rejected titles and turning them into paintings on paper, text-based paintings on paper. So when they're done making a painting, they would go into one of the, the holsters, and then the painting that was in this holster would then be available for a visitor to take home. There were 10,632 rejected titles that they made, and they were, alph they were alphabetized, so they made their way through the um, list in this sort of, like I said, like studio factory. And um, when the exhibition opened, the stack of paper was over six feet tall and kind of functioned like a clock because as the, um, as the, as the painting went on, this went like an egg timer, kind of. And John and Lenka's idea was that the paintings would stack up here and visitors could go through like record bins, but pretty much as soon as something came off the wall, somebody would snatch it and take it home. The project was called Fruit and Other Things. So here we are in the last day of the Carnegie International, about 4.48 uh, in the afternoon. The museum's about to close at 5.00. They've timed it perfectly, so the last zinnias is being painted. Here are um, happy visitors. Uh, and so here's that clock, <laughs> empty, the last piece of paper, the last zinnias. And this was the team of painters that we hired that were um, working around the clock to make fruit and other things. So now we're going to ascend. 
Um, this is a Solowit wall drawing from a 1985 Carnegie International, which has remained permanent. And I'm um, sort of picking us up here at the top of the ramp is um, a painting by Sarah Crowner. And it leads us right through the wall into the first gallery. And I'm going to stop here and I'm going to introduce you to my team. This is Ashley McNeilis and Liz Park, associate curator, curatorial assistant. When you do the Carnegie International, it's like building an institution within the institution. I hired my own team. You come up with your own way of doing everything from publications to wall labels. You, you, you make this exhibition. So there's the small but mighty team. So across from Sarah Crowner's painting made of tile are these paintings by Ulrika Muller, which are um, carpets. She works with weavers in Oaxaca. Sarah works with um, ceramicists in Guadalajara. And so the sort of first, um, it's uh, sort of the sort of first procession uh, in the international, I thought of as um, sort of checking in on conditions of painting today. So to have um, Ulrika and Sarah who um, identify as painters but are, and are working with um, not oil on canvas but um, different sort of a, a applied arts, mediums, materialities, craft, um, abstraction, architecture with uh, Sarah's work, um, figuration, the body with Ulrika, um, sort of in conversation. Now we're moving um, into painting. This is Rachel Rose, um, a video installation by Rachel Rose, who trained as a painter and um, moved into film and video because she couldn't get what she needed from, uh, from painting but um, she was really happy to have her uh, video shown like a painting, with painting all around it, not in a dark room, but here in the space that she created for this um, animation, which kind of appears like a painting on the wall. And then you moved into space with the figurative painting of Lynette Yadom Boake, um, an artist of Ghanaian heritage, uh, British born, uh, uh, lives and works in London. So these are not African Americans, they are black figures and they are painted from uh, Lynette's imagination. She doesn't work from models. Uh, she works from uh, references to imagery of the figure. And um, it was Lynette who specified that we paint the walls this magnolia co color. Ulrika had specified the color, that dark color in the first gallery. Um, for the paintings to hang, and I think we get a sense of why. Um, with this painting, you can see the corners have that same magnolia color, and it kind of has this effect of releasing those figures into our space. And then there were other um, paintings where you, if spaces, people in spaces where you couldn't go, so there was these sort of different intimacies that she staged, and she truly staged this installation. She made all new work, she sent more paintings than she ended up showing. There was a day of her um, editing, moving them around, um, even just you can feel how low they hang. There's a sense of um, uh, this being a sort of tableau. So the museum acquired this painting for the collection and um, Lynette was the Carnegie Prize winner. So since 1896, since the first Carnegie International, someone gets a prize. Uh, Tiffany designed this ostentatious medal that somebody goes home with along with $10,000. So Lynette was the prize winner and there's a nice um, 
kind of recursiveness back to the first international, Winslow Homer was the Carnegie Prize winner. And if you go to the museum, the work that has accession number one for the entire museum's collection is this work by Winslow Homer that came from the Carnegie International. So the International has been this kind of engine for building the collection since minute one. And for my International, 70% of the artists who participated in the show, um, work by them, will enter the collection through the International. Ah, I love this. This is the first Carnegie International, which you can see was hung salon style of all these accepted paintings. Yeah, and these are high school students, imagine in hats. So our procession through painting, please join us if you want to hear uh, a talk. <laughs> well, I'm going to go till, uh, yeah, uh-huh. So Procession Through Painting ends with um, Mel Bachner, um, his text-based paintings. Um, we acquired do, you, do I Have to Draw You a Picture? Mel, um, uh, one of the founding figures of conceptual art, is from Pittsburgh, too. His father was a sign painter. And um, he also was like a Andy Warhol, a tam shanter So now we're going to go around this corner into a space. We're going to pick up the pace here um, into a space. So we've gone from painting to thinking about the space of culture itself. So museums and libraries and archives with the work of Humababa, who is down in, down in the zombies uh, exhibition right now. So um, Huma is an artist who draws on um, traditions of the figure from across time and space. So sort of drawing all this energy from the museum itself. And then Dianita Singh, a photographer who creates these sort of portable museum structures. And this series of images were all taken in archives throughout Rajasthan, where instead of things in folders, um, papers, um, manuscripts are wrapped in cloth, these cloth bundles. So from a museum and archive, then into a space with nature, with the work of Art Labor and um, Abel Rodriguez. So Art Labor created a hammock cafe. Um, every morning from 11 to 1, we serve Vietnamese coffee from a small farm plantation in Vietnam. One of the collective's members' um, family runs this farm. And who knew that Vietnam is the second largest producer of coffee in the world? Um, they produce a kind of industrial strength coffee that gets used for um, like instant coffee. And um, so in this very gentle way, this um, installation brought us into global coffee trade. And overhead, working with um, art labor, the great American artist Joan Jonas painted these traditional Vietnamese kites. Um, Joan had mentored one of the collective's members, and they asked her to contribute to their installation. And then um, across from the Hammock Cafe, um, this work by Abel Rodriguez. Abel is a member of the Nanoya tribal community in the Amazonian rainforest. And so Abel does not identify as a contemporary artist. He is a, um, a namer of plants. And so for him, drawing is a language that allows him to make legible to us all that he knows about the plants and what you can eat and what you can't eat and the cycles of the river and the, and the forest.
These are extraordinary works. And if you're a scientist, you look at them and you know this is knowledge. It's not some illustration of what the forest might look like. So then we go through this little rat hole into this work by um, Alex de Corta. So Alex is a Philadelphia-based artist who I'd worked with when I was in Philadelphia. And I asked Alex to do something spectacular, as I knew he would, for the international. So we'd end this kind of procession in, um, in a, a kind of a world within a world. So Alex built this house out of neon, house out of neon. And the house, remember Alex is from Philadelphia, is a, is a drawing of Benjamin Franklin's house on Independence Plaza in Philadelphia. Here's a ghost house. And then the house is sitting on this um, sort of candy cobblestone floor, which is a reference to the set from Mr. Rogers' Land of Make-Believe. And I think you all know now where Mr. Rogers is from Pittsburgh, the um, uh, Mr. Rogers' Land of Make-Believe was made in the WQED studios right around the corner from the museum. So Alex, and, and here, ins okay, inside of the house is this giant television screen. And Alex produced a series of 57, he called them cartoons, videos. Um, so in this one, and they were various durations, some were a minute, some were 20 minutes. Here's Alex DeCorta with his prosthetic face on as Mr. Rogers. So, and he's singing Edelweiss. So um, these kind of um, jam up mashups of references. So you have to think that Alex, like he made all the entire land of make-believe, trolley, the puppets, everything to make this video. So in these, so you saw Alex's Bugs Bunny, you saw Alex's Sylvester the Cat on this kind of effed up Frank Stella painting. Here's Bugs Bunny. Uh, so it was a very sticky work of art. The, 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 the video sequence was three hours and three and a half hours. People would go in and not come out. <laughs> um, it was a truly um, magnetic artwork by Alex. And it had in it these references to pop culture that maybe you know, you know, different generations kind of could access it different ways. It's very emotional. And um, you can go to Venice if you would like to see all three and a half hours. Um, the video is going to be part of the Venice Biennale, which opens in May. But our tour um, continues in the Carnegie Museum of Art. And we're back in the Hall of Sculpture. Um, now we're here with the work of Post Commodity. And um, they created this uh, floor installation. And what is it? It is um, glass and coal and steel. So they were, Post Commodity is an indigenous collective. And um, they say that their work invites us to think about the complexities of the contemporary world through an indigenous lens. So for them, um, they were interested in Pittsburgh's uh, industrial history. This is Pittsburgh's kind of the, the materiality of in Pittsburgh's industrial past. And um, the sort of conceptual point of departure for them was a Navajo sand painting. But instead of like little pieces of sand, you got these chunks of these um, glass, steel, and coal. And um, a Navajo sand painting is um, it's temporary, as this work will be swept up. But it's also an object of ceremony. So a sand painting is a place for spirits to um, um, come and go from this earth. 
And so there was an element of ceremony to post-commodities piece where um, daily uh, Pittsburgh um, musician, someone connected to Pittsburgh's great jazz history, would interpret the installation as a musical score. So you can see on his music stand uh, an image of the piece. And so we had all different musicians, all different, we had people vocalizing, people playing conch shells, um, every horn you can name. So interpreting the piece as music. And when the music would play, another ceremony would take place where these doors, which have been closed since the 1970s, would be opened by the security guards. And this, um, uh, it would, the sound would then travel into the Natural History Museum's Hall of Minerals. And you get these bewildered people come staggering out <laughs> of the Hall of Minerals into, uh, into the Hall of Sculpture. And when artists visited the museum and we talked about the international, I talked a lot about this idea of flow and how um, as a child going to this museum, all of the parts were contiguous to one another. You could travel freely for free from the library to natural history to the art museum. And now these parts have closed off to one another. So, um, and this space itself then um, is very significant for the contemporary Carnegie International because whatever you put here becomes the kind of poster child for your international. So this is, this is the poster child for my international. This is the 2013 Carnegie International. Um, 2008 Carnegie International with Mike Kelly's candor. Um, uh, Mangelos in the 2004 Carnegie International. I'm showing you these so you can see how dynamic this space is. Um, Martin Kippenberger in 1999, Donald Judd in uh, 1995, and here's Alan McCullum in 1991. And Alan, these are casts of bones from the Museum of Natural History's paleontology collection. So Alan casted bones and made the kind of museum into a boneyard here with this, um, this floor piece. So this 1991 Carnegie International was curated by Lynn Cook and Mark Francis. And what's significant is this was the first time the museum invited outside curators to come in and organize their historic signature exhibition. So prior to that, the show had been done in-house, usually by the director himself. So Lynn and Mark are invited in, and for me it's a kind of marker um, of of the beginning of a, of, of a beginning of the contemporary. Um, in 1991, museums didn't have curators of contemporary art on staff, and they didn't have collections of contemporary art. So, um, and here are the other, here's the other curators since, all of whom have gone on. Here's Richard Armstrong, he's the curator of the Guggenheim, or the director of the Guggenheim. Um, uh, uh, Madeline Grinstein, uh, director of the MCA Chicago. Um, anyway, so, uh, the, uh, the, the shoulders that I stand upon in organizing this international. And I thought about that a lot, about how these exhibitions are a compilation. Like it's not a parade of internationals, each one sort of supplanting the one that came before, but that we're really building this history of the contemporary, this research, this looking at the contemporary together. And so that's how I write about uh, this Carnegie International in the dispatch. And this is the catalog for the Carnegie International. I have a copy of it here. 
um, which just came out. So it's one of two publications that I created for the show. The first is The Guide, and The Guide came out shortly before the exhibition opened. And you can see, it is small. It is, uh, it's sort of your travel guide to bring you into the exhibition. And the exhibition itself, beside that one wall text that we looked at, um, had very little verbiage. So um, here's a wall label. And um, the wall label would say, see page 50. And you could if you wanted to, but you didn't have to, you could turn to your guide to page 50 and you could read more about Mel Bachner. So the kind of didactics that would appear on the wall were in this book. And it was your handheld device to navigate the Carnegie International. With the idea of, um, uh, it was your handheld device to get lost in the Carnegie Museum um, in the immense building. So um, kind of quickly, we're going to move um, and see how artists, how the exhibition really did move out into the museum itself. So here, here's Karen Kalimnik, um, the director's favorite artist. And um, she did an installation in the decorative arts collection where her work, these salon style installations of her work are kind of flowing around the um, museum's historic collection of decorative arts. Here's this amazing sculpture installation by a young sculptor, Jesse Reeves, in the museum's um, hall, um, architectural center. We have a dedicated center for the study of architecture. Um, and then we also have a collection of architectural uh, fragments, the Hall of Architecture. And here, Saba Inab created um, this sculpture, which is for her a model and a memory of a destroyed tunnel on the Gaza Strip. So she created a kind of new fragment and ruin for the Hall of Architecture. And then in our magnificent um, Carnegie Music Hall, we screened um, weekly and, um, a film by Tacita Dean. So Tacita Dean is an artist who works with film, and to show her work you have to have a projectionist, and, um, and uh, it's very specific, the presentation of this film. It was called Event for a Stage, and it was a work that she had made for um, a black box theater, and she had always envisioned it being in a jewel box theater. So this kind of made Tacita's dream come true. So then we also have a small, uh, we have a hall of miniatures. So these little miniature period rooms. And the artist Jeremy Deller inserted, he called it the world's smallest video installation. So little tiny TVs in the um, miniature rooms. And they had sort of historic battle reenactments. So Jeremy's idea was kind of like bringing the war back home, all of the Jacobean era, era as kind of as referenced in the antiques, little tiny antiques in here. So then in our um, also magnificent, um, the Grand Staircase, a film by Kevin Jerome Everson. It was an eight hour long, Kevin calls it a shift film. It was a day in a factory in Virginia and it would begin at, um, with the workers arriving and leave with the workers leaving at five. Um, and it's here, very specifically cited, said it was magnificent, um, the mural program which Carnegie commissioned for this grand staircase, this was the original entrance to the museum, is called the crowning of labor. And we see uh, men heroically uh, laboring. Uh, uh, here's, here's some men heroically laboring. And um, they're building the great city, the great industrial city, which looks a heck of a lot like Pittsburgh. And then a captain of industry is being lifted into heaven by showgirls for his good work on earth. 
He's over there somewhere, so his little sippets. And who does that man resemble but Andrew Carnegie himself? <laughs> so here's Andrew Carnegie as um, depicted by Andy Warhol, um, this uh, giant um, silkscreen image. And it is, uh, we're seeing it installed in what was an exhibition within the exhibition. So I invited another curator to make a show within the Carnegie International. And that curator is Koya Koya, who runs a space in Dakar, Senegal called the Raw Material Company. It's a space of, um, of exhibition. It's a space of uh, conversation. It's a space of teaching curatorial practice. And um, it's really a space, it's a, it's a hub for, for, the con for the transmission of the contemporary. So I invited Koyo to um, create an exhibition to draw widely and freely across the museums, the art museums collections and also the natural history museums collections. And so she made the show and it's, um, uh, it's within the permanent collection you would come across Koyo's um, kind of intervention installation called Dig Where You Stand. And she specified these, um, these uh, walls that were for her both rust colored, but also the earth of um, Dakar, Senegal. And um, it was really a think piece through objects on what Koyo calls her preoccupation. Uh, and that is um, coloniality, um, not colonialism, but coloniality, which she says is the condition of being occupied so we can be occupied um, by, by governments. We can be occupied in terms of um, land or territory, but we can be occupied by economies as well. And so um, she was kind of exploring this idea of coloniality through the museum's collections with an emphasis on Pittsburgh itself. And um, you saw things together which would otherwise never be together. Um, and for me, the, um, there's a kind of work being done here, uh, so the work of the contemporary, and that is that with our museums, with the treasures that museums have, with these objects that we steward, it's time to be telling new stories and to be telling new histories that are um, uh, addressing diversity and inclusivity and um, changing and shifting boundaries and this idea of shifting terrain. And so, um, uh, Koyo's work uh, it kind of was operating as a kind of um, uh, a kind of a think piece, yes, but also a kind of um, operational model for the museum itself, perhaps to um, implement moving forward after the Carnegie International. And here's our Issa Noguchi. So um, there's the immense building. Um, we've looked at a lot of stuff. We haven't looked at all of it. Um, uh, we've looked at most of it. Uh, Koyo's show, um, her, like, oh, it's this, um, this idea that the museum, through Koyo's exhibition, we might look at it anew. Maybe it's not going to look the same to us after, after the Carnegie International, but after the way that these objects that are familiar are being used in different ways, seen in different ways. So um, there's another feature of this museum which will um, ever be seen anew after the Carnegie International. So. Um, Around the cornice of the historic building are the names of great white men. So here's Tchaikovsky and Rubinstein and Chopin. So they're um, musicians and artists and um, men of science and exploration and engineering. Their names ribboning the building. 
Tavares Strawn is um, an artist from the Bahamas. When, when I invited him to the museum to think about what he'd like to do for the Carnegie International, he was very taken with that um, engraved entablature, to which he has added for the Carnegie International a register of names of women and people of color who have also contributed to making um, culture great. So for instance, Jane Elliott, um, a radical educator, um, educator uh, of anti-racism, uh, here's her. Um, here we have Matthew Henson, the black polar explorer. There was a little um, key to all of the names, all 54 names, so, oh, here's Thelonious Monk, the musician. And um, so wherever there was an engraved name, um, Tavares inserted a neon name between the engraved name. So not to eclipse, but to illuminate. And um, on the facade of the building, it says, uh, this museum is dedicated to the people of Pittsburgh by Andrew Carnegie, blah, 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 blah. So um, Tavares has underlined, this museum is dedicated to all of the people who've been made invisible by the mechanisms of history. It's a very beautiful, powerful piece. Um, and um, soon it will be gone. Um, it will remain indelible in our memories. And um, there were 54 names in all. And um, all were cross-referenced in this, uh, the piece was called the Encyclopedia of Invisibility. And here's the encyclopedia that Tavares in his studio, as long as I've known Tavares, they've been researching this tome, which you open it. Uh, it looks like every encyclopedia you ever copied a research paper from. And there are people, and there are incidents, and there are um, th things that are mostly, mostly, mostly unknown to you or contained in this volume. So it remains contained. So another work that um, will kind of echo in the sort of, in the bardo of the Carnegie International is this work by Park MacArthur. It was a sound piece. So here we are in the permanent collection, the sort of, there was a, um, a sort of moment where we stopped and we would hear Park's piece, which she called Pitts. And she um, worked um, to gather field recordings in a quarry in Norway and then composed them into this um, audio piece that you heard. And this quarry is significant because it's where all of the stone that the Carnegie Museum of Art was built from is this Norwegian larvakite. So it's kind of like we're hearing, we're hearing, we're hearing the stone through um, Park's piece. So um, these are echoes. Um, that can uh, sort of play in our imaginations and memories until the next Carnegie International in 2022 to be curated by someone as yet unnamed. Uh, for me, that's the end. <laughs> I don't know if there's time for questions. Thank you for such a wonderful talk. Really appreciated it. Um, I was curious as to how you made the decision of making a book as the guide rather than the typical use your telephone, hit the number, and get the recording. Um, OK, so um, 
yeah, it was like, why not an app? And I knew I didn't want to do an app for a bunch of reasons. One of them is uh, not everybody has a, a, a device that they can uh, download the uh, whatever onto. Um, my experience is apps break. <laughs> they are the, um, they're not reliable. And um, when I see people in museums, or when I myself have used an app, two things happen. Um, you'll use it at first to be, oh, you know, oh, how interesting, this app, this kind of toy, and then you, uh, you don't follow through with it. So why invest all that work into something that maybe isn't really going to be fully used? But um, I think as soon as we start looking at our screens, that's where we go. And then maybe we take a picture and we post it. That's great. Then maybe we start checking our email. And so I, I with a book, to, to me, um, there's a kind of act of reading that is very analogous to looking. And so the book is kind of um, underscoring that idea of reading. And then the book, too, is um, it's like any guide. It's the, some people like a guide. Some people don't like a guide. So it, it was there if you wanted it. And they were, you could check them out like a, um, a guide by sell. Uh, you could like leave your credit card and borrow a guide, or you could buy one for $15, or they were kind of readily sprinkled around as well. Also, I, I love Baydecker's guides, as uh, 19th century travel guides, and if you look at the guide, you'll see it's like, a, yeah, it's a reincarnation, yeah. That's what I... Um, that's what I connected with mm -hmm. was the sense of history in the Carnegie, that there was a traditional way of, you know, moving through the exhibition, the way it seemed like your typeface was chosen and your frontispages and the way it was bound. I really appreciated that sense of age. So the, 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 the design had three phases um, and they were expressed. The uh, um, first phase was the website, which you got a glimpse of from that page of the Tamashanners, and it had a very um, kind of typewriter kind of um, font to it. It just looked like the idea of the, the first phase was um, we just got to bang this out and just start getting it out there. And so um, I called that the trust phase, thinking of like a trust bridge, like we just got to get across that river. This was the fuss phase, so everything's kind of ornamental and there's script and the, even the, the name is kind of, you know, the Carnegie International 57th edition. And then... Um, this is, ha, is the final phase, and um, it has this, um, it's called cat, catenary, which is a natural line between two points, like, so a rope bridge is like a catenary. And its font is uh, no fuss. Um, it's very distilled, the design here. And the idea is that this is the exhibition as knowledge going out into the world, but it's also the exhibition as archive, like now we're done. We're like, I don't know, putting the umbrella down, making way for the next one. So, um, yeah, here's the. And the, the dispatch is also where Leslie Hewitt, a photographer, participated in the international. Her work only exists in the dispatch, so it's a, it's a container for art. Leslie made a film um, in the form of still photographs in three, it's a three-part film, and you'll, you'll feel it when you get there. It's a, so, yeah, thank you for observing that. So once the artists were chosen, how much time did they have to make their pieces? So um, 
a luxury that you have when the, with the international is I had three years to work on this show and colleagues who work on a biennial, um, usually by the time you, you've been picked and you've signed your contract, your checklist is due and, you know, chop, chop, let's go. So here I had time almost as a material to make the show with artists and that was my invitation to artists was to come to Pittsburgh. Um, don't say yes, just come, come and um, check me out, <laughs> check out the museum, the city, spend some time, and then uh, do you want to make this thing together? And by and large, artists made new work. There, was, um, there were a few works, like Alex was, was commissioned, Abel's, or, um, Elle's piece was commissioned. Um, by and large, artists too took advantage of that time to make something new with the spaces and that uh, you know the spaces that they were going to occupy. Yeah, that's very yeah. And I feel it was a real gift that artists gave to the um, to the exhibition. You felt how situated everything was because artists knew, like the grandeur of that building or Huma. Um, she said this was an opportunity for her to work in relief using the wall and then to work at that height. Um, so, yeah. Did you um, use existing interior architecture or did you make and, and adapt the exhibits to the existing architecture or were you able to create in interior architecture for a specific exhibit? So um, I uh, um, really shaped the exhibition in terms of the museum and its spaces and um, my early um, kind of um, decision <laughs> processes were about like kind of imagining either artists or kinds of looking or speeds or sort of like uh, kind of the footprint of the museum helped me shape the exhibition and invite artists and um, and I didn't by and we didn't build walls like that that platform that Thaddeus's work is on we built that but by and large we didn't we used the spaces as is and um, it's interesting so Laura Hopman um, her international when we were looking at that hall of architecture and you saw the three it was very severe the three plinths um, she um, worked with designers and they really created like almost like a space within the museum that was the international so again that's something you decide as the curator like how you want to use the space itself what uh, what didn't go the way you thought it would and what did you do <laughs> um, so um, So John and Lenka, the, uh, the artist with the 10,632 titles, uh, there's initially, um, so some artists I invited them with something particular in mind, which they could reject or become the point of a departure for a conversation. With John and Lenka, I knew I wanted that space to be active because it's the first space that you experience. And I thought, well, if we have something super contemplative here, that's very nice, but everyone will get very sleepy and uh, that will be it. So I needed kind of something very energetic. So um, that, um, and I 
floated this idea of like a screen studio, because at the time I was thinking a lot about screens, like television screen and silk screen and screens and screens, and they both have connections to print and dissemination through their work. And so I kept saying, I don't literally mean a screen studio, but there was some little part of me that maybe did. <laughs> and, and they, it, that, that was a really hard one because they just didn't want to have something prescribed and I wasn't really trying to prescribe. But then the first thing they proposed was just so outlandish and expensive and crazy. So like that, that was a hard one for us to, we both respected where the other side was coming from, but it was really hard to get to where it was. And then when it did, it was like, how could, how could there have been anything else? It was so perfect. So that's sometimes what the curatorial is too, is this kind of, uh, you know, kind of like a tug of, a tug of war. Not, that war, not a good metaphor. Um, uh, yeah, it's... Um, give and take. Give and take, yeah. I mean, they conceived something I would, would not in a million years would have been able to think of, so. By and large, and there, there were like moments, touch and go moments, like El Anatsui is um, an artist who, when you invite him to do um, something, he'll, um, I was uh, talking to other curators who had worked with him, he just needs a lot of time and space. So he said, yes, I'll do something, but was it gonna be like a potholder on the front of the museum? Was he gonna do the whole thing? We didn't know, it just had to be like, I had to be very cool, like whatever. <laughs> and it wasn't until the spring so like in May that he really decided what he wanted to do and, and, and we had to make this thing. So. And it was big. And it was big. It had a lot of hours in it. It had a lot of hours in it. So things are happening at different speeds. Like a post-commodity, they came, they were the first artist I invited for a site visit. Um, they chose that space. Um, within a week they sent this <coughs> this proposal to do the sand painting. And then they just methodically, you know, you know, realized it, sourcing the materials. Everything has to be fumigated. You have to put a special floor down. <laughs> so. Thank you, Ingrid. That's good. Thank okay. you. All right.